Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm really excited to have with us David Hoff. David is a para ice hockey head coach for Team USA and he led Team USA to a gold medal recently in the Beijing Winter Paralympics, which was the fourth straight gold medal for Team USA. So welcome to the podcast, David. Hey, thanks, Liz. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you today. Well, it's really good to to be able to snavel some of your time in a what can sometimes be a very busy period. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into coaching para ice hockey? Yeah, sure. I started basically as a high school teacher and coach uh, in the United States. Uh, I'm located in northern North Dakota, uh, live in Botnow, North Dakota, and have spent the last 34 years teaching high school mathematics. And mm. along with that, um, I was a high school hockey coach for the first 30 years. I've been involved with track and field. That's kind of my my other favorite, I guess you'd say, that <laughs> I spent thir- 30 years coaching track and field at the high school level as well. But in 2010, I received an email from a inter- uh, gentleman with USA Hockey just asking if I'd be interested in helping with a summer camp that they had going on for sled hockey, uh, the opportunity, to, uh, a development camp, I guess you would say. And mm-hmm. I, I thought it'd be a great learning opportunity for me as a teacher, if nothing else. I really didn't know a lot about sled hockey other than having seen it a handful of times. So I jumped at the chance and it turned out to be the best week that I had every year. And I just look forward to it. And I guess I, I tell people I tried to do a, a good enough job every year that I got invited back to that camp. And <laughs> really at that time, I was looking, I was working with an, the other coaching staff, but working with 60 kids who were aspiring to be, you know, Paralympic athletes or have a chance mm-hmm. to get to the, that level at the United States. And so for the last, uh, I guess, 12 or 13 years now, I've done that. And I actually have graduated to the point where I actually run that summer camp. But uh, along the way, I got opportunities to be involved with uh, the national team that I never foresaw coming, but uh, mm-hmm. certainly has been probably the highlight of my coaching career. And just, I, I think I found a place where I really fit, um, love what I do with this team. And, you know, I've been so grateful to have the opportunity. Mm. Wow. And so were you an ice hockey player yourself? I, I did grow up playing ice hockey. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I, I played a little bit of ice hockey, played at the college level got to the point where I knew it was time to move to the next phase of my life and Mm -hmm. wanted to still be involved in that. And I thought coaching was my best way. So kind of gravitated towards the high school teaching, coaching side of things. Mm -hmm. Cool. And so can you tell us a little bit about the sport of para ice hockey? It used to be called sledge hockey, but it's now formally known as para ice hockey. Can you tell us a bit about the sport? Yeah, I get that question a lot from people, especially even here in the states. Just uh, you know, you you coached you, you coached high school hockey, but now you're coaching sled hockey. How did you learn the game? And really, there is not a lot of difference to the game. There's there's a few differences in terms of what I'll say players and sleds are able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, not able to skate backwards. So, where defensemen in the in the stand up game might defend skating backwards, defensemen in the sled game are going to have to skate forward with a lot of turning their head and trying to be aware, I guess, a lot more awareness with things. But really, other than that, the game is very much the same. I really appreciate it because we, in the stand-up game, we love to talk about puck possession, but puck possession still becomes throwing the puck in. The sled game, if you ever get a chance to watch it, is so much fun because it is about possessing the puck. The puck is on mm-hmm. player sticks a large amount of the time and uh, really a fun game from that standpoint. But to answer your question, it's a very 
the, the rules are very similar to the uh, stand-up game with very few differences, really. Yep. Okay. And so what are the eligible impairments for para-ice hockey? Okay. So the each of our players, when, when they make our team, one of the requirements is when we go to an international competition is they have to go through a qualification process with, uh, I'll say, a group of international medical professionals that make a determination if they're eligible. And from my standpoint, as I understand it, it really involves amputees being certified along with people with physical disabilities where there is a muscle, a lack of muscle strength. And often that, that becomes the qualification point or mm-hmm. qualification test is making sure that there is actually that lack of strength as it is claimed with the disability that the player has. So mm-hmm. it comes into, you know, an amputee or someone with some sort of muscle, lacking some muscle muscle strength. In the lower body. Yes, correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And is it a mixed gender sport or is it separated into males versus females? Yeah, it is. It, it's definitely at the Paralympic level, there's, there's definitely, it, it's not necessarily just men. The rosters are 17, although you can have an 18th player if, that 18th player happens to be a female. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to make it more inclusive for males and females. Um, in the United States, there's been a, a real push from our female side to grow the game specifically there. So all of our females in the United States have really committed to playing because I think while they realize it might not be in the near future, I think they're looking at the long-term future saying, um, let's grow this sport to the point where women have their own game as mm-hmm. well. So. Okay. And what are the physiological demands? Is it do you still have the same number of substitutions that you're allowed to have in the able body game? Because I know in the able body game it's a very high intensity, but there's a lot of turnover in terms of the substitutions. So there's enough time for athletes to rest uh, in between. Is that still the case on um, the para ice hockey? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's I, I, th- I think as I look back. Not certainly taking credit for this, but as I look back in the the six or seven years that I've been part of the national team, the game has really changed and has become more and more like the traditional game that you mentioned, where there is. Um, I, I think earlier on, you maybe saw players in in the para game play for longer periods of time, mm-hmm. and now you're seeing much more shorter periods of time, higher intensity. The use of we would say two or three lines, which would mean two or three sets of of forwards mm-hmm. um, rotating through. So we we would love for our players to go out and play at a high level for we'll say sixty seconds, and then find their way to the bench and then be replaced by by fresh players. So there's that constant rotation. But I do think the game has really evolved in the last seven or eight years, where you see that game the game played much more that way. Mm-hmm. And does everyone have a similar sort of sled in terms of the the makeup of a sled is there a lot of difference in between individuals yeah that's that is that's a great question and that's uh all of our sleds are are custom fit for the individual and that custom fit obviously depends on the disability the amputation you know where that's at there's Mm -hmm. a mold that's made so the we call it the bucket which is really the seat that the player sits in really just fits around that player and makes the sled much more responsive mm-hmm. in terms of turning and things like that. But I, I laugh as you ask the question. I'm thinking to myself, uh, 
our players go out and they look at sleds right away and they know who's is who's and I'm, I'm not quite as quick, but uh, they can definitely <laughs> tell based on, you know, whose disability make is looks like this. So that this, this bucket or this sled belongs to this player. So yeah, there, there definitely is a, an individualistic part of, you know, how the sled fits the player. Uh-huh. And are there any rules in terms of like in wheelchair rugby, for example, and wheelchair basketball, there's a, a points-based system of classification. So you can only have a set number of points on, on the field at any one point in time for you know equality, I guess, between the two teams. Does that happen in sled hockey or not? It hasn't. And uh, while there has been some discussion at some of the, uh, I'll say, international meetings, I think the not having that that rule in has won out to this point because there's the appreciation for the the tempo of the game and things like that. So at this mm-hmm. point, there has been no change to that. It's been everyone with all, all mixed disabilities, I guess, playing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so... What do you see are some of the biggest nutrition challenges that your athletes face? Yeah, I, you know, I, that's something I think it, I, I'd, I'd give you a quick, quick story here. And that goes back to, I, I mentioned my time as a high school uh, teacher mm-hmm. and I was also a high school athletic director. So I oversaw athletics in our high school. And there, there came a point in time where we were concerned about people coming into schools and the intruders and, and maybe something you know bad happened in the schools, whether it's a shooting or whatever this was. And as an athletic director, I was concerned about that happening at, at sporting events. So I, I, I got together our, our medical personnel, our, our law enforcement, our school administration officials, and we had a little meeting in the evening and we talked about those things. And what I, what I learned there really applies to what we're talking about today. But I, I was so that, that evening when we were talking about this, people looked at the game from a much different or, or, or the looked at the situation from a much different perspective mm-hmm. people were concerned about did we have an open telephone line was there going to be ambulance that were able to get there all these different things that as an athletic director i never thought about mm-hmm. and i think that's the biggest thing when i look at my job now coaching the united states team is i often am thinking about the hockey side of things mm. but the nutrition side is so important we talk about performance and we love to talk about that on the coaching side but the people that really help us get the most out of that performance are the sports nutrition people. You know, Jackie in our case is, is so good. So I've learned a lot about if we want that performance and we love to have the performance, not just in the game, but also good performance in the practices. Mm-hmm. It's so much the nutrition leading up to that, mm-hmm. that allows for that to happen. So the, the learning curve has been high for me, but uh, I think that going back to that little meeting we had, that really applies to here. Yep. and letting the people who are the experts in their area, you know, do their thing. Mm-hmm. And so would you say that there's, you know, it, would you say things like hydration is an issue? Like you, you kind of expect that on being on ice, the players have that environmental condition that helps to keep them cool. Is that the case or not? No, and absolutely hydration is a big part of it. And when you say that, we had a training camp back in October and Jackie and I had a conversation about exactly hydration. Mm-hmm. And again, th- looking at the perspectives, I think as a coach, we're often thinking about the practice format being this. And uh, at the end of the practice, we went back and we were having lunch and Jackie just said to me, hey, you know, good practice. And she said she, she looks at those breaks between drills or things that are going on in practice as opportunities for hydration. Mm-hmm. And she said to me something that really stuck with me. And that was at the end of the practice, 
we often circle our players up and we give them a few, you know, verbal reminders of here's what's happened today and what we have to prepare for. And Jackie said, you know, there was an opportunity for one more hydration Mm. at that last time getting around. And when you think about that, my perspective was the verbal reminders the player needed, but she was thinking about the recovery Mm. um, coming out of that practice. And also probably even the hydration leading into our next, you know, session that might've been later that day or the next day, whatever the case was. So hydration, I think is so important. And I think it's from my perspective, probably really important for people with the disabilities, uh, making sure that they are very hydrated in those cases. So mm-hmm. yeah, much, very important part of it. And so do they, do they actually sweat much in sled hockey? Yes. And I, our players do go through some sweat tests and, and to look at, and I know there's a, a varying amount because we always get the little report that says this person sweats a lot and this mm-hmm. one doesn't. But uh, I think more than more than a person would realize is just because we're on ice in a cold environment, mm. you also are wearing the heavy equipment, the shoulder pads, the jersey, and maybe some of those things don't breathe mm-hmm. as well as we all might think it does. So definitely sweating a lot. And then just with the upper body being the mode, the shoulders and arms being the mode of transportation, there's a lot of work that's going on you know, with those muscles. Yeah, yeah. And so do you notice over a training camp that players fatigue quite quickly relative to what you might expect, say, in an able-bodied player? Or what what do you see in terms of those differences? Because they're just using that smaller muscle group and, and so repetitively. Yeah. And, and Liz, I, I don't probably have anything other than my eye test to go by here. Yeah. That's, I, that's, what a coach, a, that's what a coach yeah. has is their eye test. <laughs> yeah. but, but I'm amazed. At, I, I think my mind expected there to be more of a drop off, mm-hmm. you know, say through a through a camp that towards we got to the end of the camp that that our practices would fatigue or or maybe even within a seventy five minute practice session that the you know as, as we went the longer we went the the worse the practice would be and that's what amazes me about the para athletes is the fact that it isn't that you know I think that's maybe one of the the the, the mental blocks. Um, that they've gotten through is that just because I have this disability doesn't mean that I can't perform. It's that I've got to train properly Mm -hmm. so that I'm able to. And then along with that training, if the nutrition and the hydration are such that it allows them to, I think they're going to have a better chance to be successful later in practices and later in our training camps. Mm -hmm. And so do you have a resident program or is it all camps based? We are in, in seasons like this, which is a non-Paralympic year, we are in basically camps based. There will be times typically for us that might be a five or six day period where we're together. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times where we get together for, oh, 10 to 12, 14 days. But in a Paralympic year, we would be more residency based uh, leading up to the games. Mm-hmm. And do you find that, you know, in the camp space, have you... Have you had to make any changes to the way you program your your training over that camp to to ensure the sustainability of their performance during training? Yes, and I, I think the biggest thing for me was my philosophy on a coach is I, I want the the practice environment to replicate the game environment, and by by that I mean I want us to compete against each other. So that we, I think it's it's more of a transferable environment in terms of the skills and the concepts. If if we make it game like we make it competitive, mm-hmm. and so for me the biggest adjustment would be is monitoring or or really making sure that the amount of time we practice is appropriate. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. um, if the intensity is going to be high, we can't we can't be high intensity for 90 minutes every day. Yep. So if I can, if I want high intensity, can I bring that down to 40 minutes? Can I bring that to 65 minutes or whatever it is? So I think that's really my job mm -hmm. to make sure based on where the players are at, that if I want the high intensity, the time we're out there fits where we're at physically. Mm. Yep. And what about the strength side of things? Do, do the players do a lot of gym-based work from a strength perspective and is, is how much importance do you put on yeah. that in, in terms of the overall coaching program? Yeah, so important. And I think that's another part that uh, you look at from probably even going back to 2010 to where it's at now. Players realize how much more important that off-ice training is. Mm -hmm. And then not even that, but just like in, in all sports, how specific your training can be. Mm. You know, what movements can you do that really replicate a skating stride or strengthening those muscles in a way that it's going to positively affect your skating stride. So that's so important. And I think, you know, going back to your, your question about the residency program leading up to the games in Beijing, we trained in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And I, I, thought, I thought the setup was really nice. We would train on ice Monday and Tuesday Wednesday was always a day we did not practice on ice, and then mm -hmm. it was Thursday, Friday. So there was that opportunity to recover. And then our players also had their off-ice training with a, with one of our trainers. But that was set up so that, again, we were looking at having the right amount of rest in there as well. So it, it, it is extremely important. And then how specific that off-ice training is is really important as well. And when you're doing a more camp-based program, how do you maintain contact with your athletes in between those camps? And and are you pro programming their training in between camps or is that really up to, do, do they have their own trainers in their own home base that, that help with that? Yeah, uh, starting where you finish right there. Um, that probably is the biggest part is our guys do have trainers that they feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Back in their home areas right now, we have, I'll say, several of them training in the Denver area, several in the Nashville area. So there's kind of still those core groups, but they they do a little bit more of that. For us as a staff, in a year like this, it's probably a little more of us checking in on athletes via the phone, via email, text, whatever it is. And that's their our way of staying maybe a little bit more on top of things. But there's no doubt when when they go back home after a camp, um, we do have to rely on them and some of their personal training as well. Mm. And when you travel, I guess, and when you've got your training camps themselves, what are some of the key things that you've implemented from a nutrition perspective that you feel have you know had the biggest impact? Are there things that have changed since 2010 that you feel have been really positive improvements from a nutrition perspective? I think it's uh, I think it's understanding what each player needs, and I think Jackie does a good job of really talking about nutrition with each person because, and, and you are way more of an expert on this than mm -hmm. I am, but every one of us is a little bit different. And, and what we like in terms of foods and what we don't like and, and, you know, is, is all a little bit different. And so I think understanding what you can do to help that player put the best nutrition they can in their body is, is really been a big part of it. I've gotten to know Jackie since about 2016, and I think mm -hmm. she's done a really good job um, with our players that way. I think the other side of it is, though, really our, our staff, our, our training staff, athletic trainer, uh, has done a great job of making sure nutrition is available 
in our locker room area all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I, I look at it like, I, I think back and I was telling you before we went on the air here just a little bit about, I've seen things from the high school perspective and in the high school perspective, nutrition is we're going to have that good meal the night before a game. Mm -hmm. And I, I always joke with high school kids and say, well, like, why is it just before a game? Like, why isn't it the proper nutrition leading up to a practice? Mm -hmm. You know, if it's about performance, and I, I would hope for, for your listeners that they would think about practices as important as a game, where it's about trying to perform well, because ultimately we're trying to make our performance a little bit better all of the time. And mm -hmm. So I look at nutrition as being the, the right nutrition to allow me to perform well in a practice or a game the right nutrition within that. And maybe it's, maybe it's just hydration, but also for some of our players, it's between period nutrition that allows them to have a little bit of energy throughout that. And then it's the nutrition on the backside of that competition or that practice that allows them to start to prepare for that next practice or game, whatever it is. So I think of it for me, it's as I've learned it and in my own way of thinking, it's kind of that cycle of nutrition leading up mm -hmm. within the competition or practice. And then that recovery and prepare again, working you back to the other side. Mm -hmm. So yep. um, I, I think our, our, our staff just does a really good job of making sure there's those things available for our players to get, yep. you know, on the recovery side or leading up. And do you do any form of any, any monitoring? Is there something that you as a program implement in terms of something that the guys have to self-monitor in terms of how they're recovering like you say that you watch them and and at training camps you're kind of observing how they're coping but are there any physical or physiological things that they assess and and report back on is like a you know the amount of sleep they've had or any muscle soreness or anything like that yeah so i Throughout a camp, because you know I, I've got an idea going into what I want the practice to, practices to look like, mm -hmm. and knowing how many sessions we're going to have and the intensity level, I will ask players because maybe again it's not the eye test in this case, but maybe it's the ear test. You know, what, what do I hear when I ask one of them? How do you feel at this point? You know, we're three practices in, where they feel like the other part is. I really rely on Doc Eline and, and Mike Cortez, our doctor and our trainer, because they are the guys that are seeing the little bit of muscle soreness or those types of things, um, the bumps, the bruises or whatever. So they have a little bit of an idea where they're at. And so I rely on that part of it. Mm -hmm. The other part is though, that's been interesting is our players. And I don't know if they use it quite as much as they did for a while. They, for, for quite a while, they were using the whoop app oh, yeah. and mm -hmm. it gave them a little bit of, of their recovery. And so they could, they could see their strain during, during practices or during workouts or whatever. And there was maybe if nothing else, it was a little bit more of, um, they were in this group together, so they saw everyone's work. So maybe there was that motivation mm. not to be the the one with the least strain. But it also, you also wanted to be, I, I would hear when we were in the locker room, I might hear, you know, so-and-so must have had a great night of sleep because their recovery was very good. So mm. I do think there's definitely the fact that they are trying some of these things now. Beyond that, I, I, as I told you, I'm not the expert in some of those areas, but our, our athletes are definitely aware of that for sure. And obviously getting some learnings from it as they, they understand the relationships between different things. Yeah, I think so. And, and maybe sometimes when you look at the data and the data says you had a good night's sleep and then you also associate that, yeah, I feel good. Yeah. Uh, maybe that, as you say, that's good learning right there as well too. So, yeah. 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 Cool. So, David, do you have any recommendations for other potential para ice hockey coaches like coaches who maybe are in the ice hockey area or 
you know, as you say, you've also coached track and field, perhaps in other sports who may be interested in getting into into some coaching for para ice hockey. How do they do that? I, I think it's really finding an association just as far as getting it started, but finding a, a local association. And then how, how do we provide opportunities for, I'm going to say, kids with physical disabilities out there? You know, they, I, I think often we, we look at traditional kids that fit the mold of hockey, and it's easy to try to say, well, we're going to grow this. But there's such a group of people out there that we can provide opportunities for. So trying to find op- an opportunity, and maybe it's through, like in the United States, it's through USA Hockey. USA Hockey has a great program for mm-hmm. sled hockey, for, for blind players, for you know, the deaf players, um, there's so, so many of those opportunities, but finding, I guess, a, 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 in the United States, it might be a national governing body and getting in touch with them and, and how can I help? Is there something in my area or can I start something in my area? But mm-hmm. uh, it's it definitely an area where we can, we, we have the opportunity to really help provide opportunities for kids to participate in sport for sure. Mm. Yeah. And are there any particular sort of coaching courses that coaches can attend that, that you feel are, are worthwhile or do you think it's more just sure. connecting with other coaches and, and learning from them? Yeah, I, I would say both. But in the United States, and I'll plug USA Hockey just a little bit on this, USA Hockey really has done a good job of trying to provide learning opportunities for, for all coaches throughout the country, but even really specifically for coaches who are coaching the disabled variations of sport, be it mm-hmm. blind, be it sled hockey, whatever it is. And I just participated on one of those in one of those coaching clinics here in the mid-December mm. um, where we had a chance to get on. I got to be on and, and was part of, we broke up into small groups on Zoom and there were nine, I believe, uh, sled hockey coaches and myself that got to spend an hour talking just about you know, what, what, where, what I feel development looks like mm-hmm. um, in sled hockey and what practices might look like. So I, I do think there are a lot of opportunities there. And then, you know, the power of, of being able to sit down with another coach or the opportunity for me to sit down and visit with someone like you that's an expert in your area. There are so many ways we can grow as coaches. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, taking advantage of those opportunities is really important as well. Mm. And what about uh, potential para ice hockey players. Uh, I know that development and, and building a, a team of, of people to come through at, at that higher level is, is something that's considered really important and, and you've been progressing with over time. How does a potential para ice hockey player get into playing? Yeah, and that's, that's really good. You, you, you need someone in an area to start a program out. And so if I'm that person that starts the program out, the, the problem sometimes you have is you might only have three, four, five, six, I'll say kids mm-hmm. with disabilities. But the great part about sled hockey is you can take people, able-bodied people, and you can put them in sleds as mm-hmm. well to fill positions. So if you wanted 10 people out there, you know, can you get five or six people that want to jump in? Maybe it's brothers or sisters. I think a program just down the road for me in Minot, North Dakota there's moms and dads, there's dads that, that, that jump in sleds and they get a chance to do something with their son who's, mm-hmm. you know, a sled hockey player. So there, there's creative ways where we can, we can provide opportunities for the people with disabilities, but it, maybe it requires a few of us on the able-bodied side, you know, to participate as well to help those numbers fill out a little bit. Mm. Yeah, that's super cool. So yeah. what's probably the, 
the biggest thing that you feel you've learnt in para ice in coaching para ice hockey over the last you know ten years or so? Oh man, I think you know I tell people I'm really fortunate to be in the position that I'm in, and uh, I, I I hope that the players I've had a chance to coach, whether it's in the the summer camp, those sixty kids every year that are aspiring to be there, or whether it's the national team players that I get a chance to work with, I I hope at some point they can say they got something from me because I know I've learned so much about all all facets of life from you know mm-hmm. these people in in the situations they're in. People with disabilities are really amazing people. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's someone that's you know been injured in war, whether it's a cancer survivor, whether it's someone that was born with the condition, injured in some type of trauma or accident. I, there, there's just so much that I've learned about life, and I think mm. uh, um, I've taken a lot out of this. I just hope I've given something back to the, you know, the players that I've had a chance to be around. Oh, I'm sure you have. Well, David, it's been fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate your time. I know you've got a busy schedule with your <laughs> your your day to day teaching job as well as your side hustle of te- of coaching the national <laughs> team. So <laughs> there's not much time in between. But before we go, can you tell us what your favorite food is? Oh, man, my favorite food. Um, <laughs> well, I would probably say I'm someone that's, um, I, I grew up on a, a Norwegian family, so it's a lot of meat and potatoes would be my favorite food, I guess, <laughs> growing up. So, any, yeah, uh, any particular type it, of meat? Not necessarily. <laughs> I think I grew up in a family where we had a little bit of everything. I do love chicken. Mm-hmm. But uh, my my mom and my grandma, I can just remember that was potatoes were always a big part of it. And mm-hmm. I guess consequently, I'm a big fan of that. And favorite vegetables along with that would always have to be carrots or corn. I think um, I could eat those at every meal. So huh. Awesome. Some great vitamin A there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you so yeah. much, David, for your time and for your experience and, and your insight. I think you know, sled hockey is not a sport that Australians are particularly familiar with, but certainly I think it's it's a really dynamic, hugely fun and, and fascinating sport to watch and you guys are the best at it. So uh, thank you for sharing your time and your expertise with us. Well, and thank you for just allowing me the opportunity to visit with you today. I certainly appreciated it. David's done a great job of building and tapping into a great support network of experts around him and his players in order to keep moving them forward and and maintain their position as the best team in the world. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Andrew Kirker, who is a sit skier in alpine skiing.